Abba Yahweh, the opportunity of sharing your truth, your knowledge and wisdom. Father God, thank you for the opportunity blessing me as I bless others with your word, Father God, for any out there that have an ear to let them hear it, to listen, to seek your face and your truth, Father God, and get into your word that you've given to all of us to be able to follow your guidance, your temperance, and your tenets, Father. Abi Yahweh Amar, Yeshua Amar, Aman. So, brother and sister, is going to share. I got some interesting things. The Holy Spirit's been chatting it up these early morning hours of this day and evening, and take me in and around some places that I hadn't quite honestly given thought to before. But this is the one thing that we are to do, to be in his word, to be in his thought process, to be in his way. This is why I signed my agreement, my contract, my covenant with God the way I did. There's blank. I didn't care what it said. It doesn't matter what it says. God is sovereign Lord, and he is going to direct my path because he is my Lord. He's my God. The Holy Spirit comes to teach me, to edify me, to exhort me, to chastise me if I if need be, and he does. Brothers and sisters, we have to remember something. We have to have good... Oh, here's that word. Temperance. And you might wonder, well, what does that mean? Well, we are chastised and we go through things that we do in order to temper our faith, to temper our strength, to test, temper our ability to persevere. What does that mean, temper? Have you ever heard of tempered glass? If you are into scuba or snorkeling or you've done any of that sort of thing and you, and you look on the glass and you used to have to look for that. And when I first started that, I learned that you could get some cheapies and you could buy some real cheap and it would be cool to be able to look underwater. But if you didn't get tempered glass... It would break or crack. So when I started getting better and, and wanting to do more, and I was getting different equipment, I would look for the mask and I would take it out of the box and all that because I wanted to see with my own eyes right around the bottom of the mask, it would say tempered glass. What does that mean? Just like when you temper steel, you have a way of doing things in a forge and you fire things, you quench the steel, it's hot, you're, it's molten and you're pounding it and driving it and then you temper the steel. What does that mean, that word temper? And it's used in the Bible. It means to strengthen if you have tempered glass, it's strengthened glass. It's reinforced. It's not going to just break. I mean, you can't go and dive down, you know, 500 feet. That's a lot of pressure down there. But you have tempered glass is strengthened glass. 
and as opposed to a plastic face shield when you go down, that can crack at 10, 12 feet down. There's pressure down there. And tempered steel. Your fine swords. Let's talk about Japanese samurai. They're made a certain way. And they're tempered, and it's the finest steel. And then you had those, um, you had those forge masters in Toledo, Toledo, and their rapiers and their swords were fine steel, fine steel. And you had people that would, back in the day, if they were going to carry a sword. Now you're talking about the Three Musketeers, uh, back in those days. If they were going to carry a sword or they were going to purchase a steel, they were going to make sure that the one that they bought from the market was a good tempered steel. So when we go through things and things occur and God allows us to walk through, that's to temper our faith. That is to temper our walk to strengthen brothers and sisters it isn't just because it happens and oh we're a we're a we're a we're a i'm melting i'm melting no you're not nothing's going to happen god's with you god is always with us and that you have to be mindful that these things are going to occur and i've shared this with you often is that as a christian our lives aren't just perfect Okay, it's not going to happen here because until he who is perfect has come, this plane of existence will not see it. What am I saying there? I'm saying the only one who is perfect, who was perfect, is perfect, and will be perfect is Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God who is of God, with God, from God, through God, and the mystery that we have of Father, Son, and Holy Ghost as one, and yet can come to each of us separately. Don't try to wrap your head around that because his thoughts and his ways are so much higher than anything that we can fathom. And we are told that God is a mystery. We are told in the scripture that Jesus Christ is a mystery. The only begotten Son of the Lord God Almighty who gave up his heavenly attributes to come down on this earth because why? He was thinking about me. He was thinking about us to come down here and sacrifice himself as the sacrificial lamb of God to come down here and cleanse our bodies, cleanse our souls, cleanse our minds. And Some of the things that the Lord has been showing and been thinking on this uh, delivery, the sermon that my pastor made Sunday. And it got me to thinking about some other things and going different directions on this. And the Holy Spirit was keeping me company as we went to explore this in my thought process. But he was talking about Lazarus. Who is Lazarus? Well, you try to follow the writings in the Bible, which can be kind of difficult sometimes. That's why the Holy Spirit is was sent. That's why Jesus said he is going to guide you and teach you and to give clarity, instruction. 
and sometimes we will need that. And this is what the Holy Spirit is all about. He is our teacher and our guide. Lazarus, as you read through the Bible, is related to Martha and Mary. And this is Mary and Bethany. And you got to know this, and sometimes it's hard to keep track. You got to remember, too, that the books of the Bible were written by different individuals at different times, different stages, and different parts of the walk, and that there's time span between, and it gets a little confusing because there's a bunch of Marys in the relationship of Jesus and the disciples. You got Mary Magdalene, yeah, Mary pronounced from Bethany, the sister of Martha, and then you have uh, one or two others, and uh, sometimes the scripture is written, and they just, uh, the, the writer of that, and for clarity with the Holy Spirit, you, the Holy Spirit will give you clarity when you read these things. Will educate you and clear that. So, but don't get hung up on those things. The individuals, when they get into the scripture, they 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 start getting hung up on certain things. Don't get hung up on it. Don't get caught. Pray the Holy Spirit to guide you through. Show, open your eyes, and pay attention to what you're being told. It'll be told to you and shared with you. So, the clarity that I have is that there are several different Marys, and the way it's reading sometimes it gets confusing. However, the clarity of the word is. God's truth. The Holy Spirit will give that clarity. So Mary, in particular Mary, um, as was with the other Marys, they always were, where were they at? They were at Jesus' feet. And you have Mary Magdala. She was from a village called Magdala. And she is called Mary Magdalene. Or Mary Magdalene, some uh, depends on the pronunciation, but that's uh, where she came from. That's who she was and is because she's in heaven. But understand this, I'm bringing this up because women were, were not treated by Jesus and the disciples, well, the disciples had to be educated in this, but you notice that there was no, no gendering specifics with Jesus, that everyone mattered to Jesus the same, equally. Um, in the culture at that time, this is why they, they count the 5,000 in the counting. Um, and I've shared with you before, the number is actually quite a bit more than that, but they because the head of the house was generally a man, and in their culture, that was the count that mattered, was the head of the house, the household, the house of 5,000, because there were 5,000 men. Now, if they were all married, they all had their wives with them, now the number is 10,000. And generally, in that culture, in that period of time, the children in the household were usually four. So now you have, do the math. You have 5,000, 10,000, 15,000, 20,000, 
And then if they had four children for each family of all those households, you're having quite a bit more than 5,000 that were actually fed, but everyone refers to it as a 5,000. But let's not get hung up on that so much as opposed to the miracle itself. This little boy, in his lunch, he had two fish and five barley loaves. And Jesus' compassion for the people that all came to hear him teach, he's like, hmm, how are we going to do this? And of course, as the scripture talks and relates it, he's talking to Philip. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm chuckling because I, I I find a bit of humor in there. Is that and and this this tends to temper my belief that God is humorous, Jesus was humorous, and and that he did it. So, in a manner of speaking, he was toying with Philip. So. Jesus already knowing how he was going to take care of the people, but he but he turned to Philip and he said, "So, hmm, wonder how we're going to do this." And it was to temper him and to prove the thought process, and that there there is a whole the reasoning behind it was the compassion and trying to get this point of instruction to the disciples was a little difficult because understanding that where they came, the walk that they came from was still in them and they still held on to it. Peter was constantly arguing with Matthew and forever trying to not so much boss Jesus around, but he was trying to guide Jesus and that he would be his safekeeper and all this. I mean, look, when they were in the garden and he whacked the guy's ear off, he did that out of impulse and because of what he was still holding on to. And Jesus healed the man's ear. All this that they held on to, but Jesus knew what he was going to do and how he was going to take care of the people. And he knew that the child was already there. He already knew. And this goes to what I've said before, when Andrew came and said, Lord, we have, we have a kid here. He's got his lunch, five barley loaves and fish, but you know, how are we going to do this? And Philip is standing right there and he said, bring me this lunch. And as it is in all things that the Lord provides for us, the blessing comes from the breaking. It comes in the breaking. Jesus was broken to bless our lives, to purify us, to wash us, to cleanse us, to give us our salvation. He was broken. Whew, was he broken. And everything you see had to do with breaking some way or another, it was broken and Jesus mended 
for the glory of God. Everything that Jesus did when he walked on the face of this earth was to glorify God. Just like the blind man at the gate, which is referenced in John several times, and you always see that the Pharisees, man, those guys, they were rude, they were obnoxious, they were self-centered, they were arrogant, uh, not just with Jesus, but where they were all the time, always bossing people around, always pushing people out of the way. They were in the market. Do you not know who I am? Do you not see me walking here? Get out of the way. Don't touch me. You're unclean. Everyone except them, they were unclean. Okay, now we're going to digress a little bit, but I brought up Mary because Jesus never treated people that way. He always treated everyone with kindness and compassion. And the women were very important in the different Marys. There were a number of them, but they were always around Jesus. They were with Jesus and they stayed by Jesus and they were at Jesus' feet. When he sat, they they got as close as they could to him and they were at his feet. Mary, she came, she broke the alabaster box. She wiped his feet with her hair. She anointed his feet. And then of course she had the Pharisee who made the comment. Now see, here's the other thing too. There is nowhere in the Bible, because this used to be a ponderance that I had going on, and the Holy Spirit took me through a whole bunch of scriptures. There is nowhere in the Bible that testifies to the fact that Mary was a prostitute. Mary Magdalene, and people talk about it all the time. Even back in that day, they assumed that she was a prostitute because she lived in and around the Red Quarter. I think I've shared this with you, but there were times back in in the 1800s, in that time, uh, in and around the Civil War, before the Civil War, and even after the Civil War, even when the first velocipedes were put on the road, and you had children, if they left home or they ran away from home or they had no parents and they left home, they would end up and they would be housekeeping, janitorial labors and things in the red quarter. What's the red quarter? The red light district, as as some would call it. And in very vernacular, hard speech, whorehouses. But they weren't practicing. What they were doing is they found it very cheap to live and the women that were there, living there, residing there, and doing their business there, would take care of these kids that would do uh, house cleaning, housekeeping, changing the bed, doing their laundry and the linen and all that. They would feed them, allow them to live there. Didn't have to cost them anything. And they also gave them allowances. They took care of them. Mary's father died, didn't have anybody. Her family was... Who knows where her family went? But people assumed that because she was living there, or that's where the general consensus is that she was residing, that they made an assumption. So Mary shows up, and you have a Pharisee, and there are some that call him, the the way they wrote the scriptures, and here's the thing that you, you got to be careful of too, is that, that there is timing between, and we're not talking about a couple of days, we're talking about sometimes a couple of years. But anyway, point being, Mary shows up, 
and Simon, a Pharisee, who was having the dinner party and had invited Jesus to come. And she came and knelt at his feet, cleansed his feet with her tears and wiped his feet with her hair and anointed his feet with the ointment from the alabaster box. I love this song. You got to hear it. It's powerful. And if it doesn't make you cry, then you need to fix the fix your waterworks. Anyway, so this Pharisee, and they used to do this all the time. They would turn to the side. They were so disrespectful. And you don't do that stuff when you have, you have a special house guest and you invite it in there and then you turn to the other people and say, hmm. Yeah, he's no prophet. He's no buddy of any worth. If he knew, if he was such a hotshot prophet, he'd know who she was, what type of woman she was. And then what did Jesus do? He already knew what they were talking about. He heard what was said. He's got that heavenly hearing. He said, Simon, 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 Simon. Pick yourself up out of the garbage and the dust and the dirt on the street. Didn't say it that way. I'm paraphrasing, so give me a break. So he tells me, he says, hey, you invited me to your house. You didn't offer me a basin to even wash my feet. You didn't give me any kind of salutation. You just sort of opened the door and let me come in. And you didn't offer anointing for my feet and knowing that I had been walking to get here. And you offered none of these and yet she humbled herself and came down and did this. Basically, Jesus was, uh, and this is what agitated the Pharisees so much, but he didn't so much as physically, except the time when he drove out the money changers and called them out for what they were, liars and thieves and stealing from the house of God and stealing from God and stealing from those that came to worship. But they were of the ilk that preferred lies over truth. So this is just another thing that added to them. But, but Simon being this important hotsy-totsy Pharisee, and he was challenged. He said, hey, you asked me to come here and share, and then you didn't even offer me a basin to wash my feet, to come into your house, to show respect in your house to wash the dust and dirt from my feet, which was a custom. I mean, it's, but he didn't even offer that to Jesus. So I'm sharing this because you're going to see that in so many ways they were purposely disrespecting Jesus. They, they Here you have some head honcho honcho guy, I don't know what seat he was in, uh, you know, an orchestration, you have the first seat, second seat, and then you work your way down in ranking for whatever section you were in, flute section, violin section, brass section. So here you have, I don't know, Simon was a second seat, third seat Pharisee. So on his tier and their little hotsy totsy court that they held. So in my looking and perception of this purposefully and willfully disrespected the Lord and that he invited him there and then didn't even offer him a bit. And, and the other house guests, I imagine that they were, had these little 
things that were at the doorway and they were offered for their feet when they showed up and came. Jesus didn't show up with a crowd, but they were offered an opportunity to wash their feet, to anoint their feet so that they didn't take that into the house of Simon the Pharisee. And Mary came and what did she do? She immediately went and anointed his feet. She went and anointed his feet, not only with washing his feet, but anointing his feet. I find, I find it very poignant in that when you go through the scriptures that the women were the ones that were tending to be, I'm sure I'm going to twist up some knickers and get some folks all agitated, but that's okay, I don't care. Um, they were the ones that seemed to be more attentive and I share that because Jesus, again, did not show a deference to the males over the females and that they were all equally important and he showed that and he made a point to show that. Whereas the men, they made a point to be, uh, here we're gonna go into the YMCA, macho, macho men. And that's, but that's their cultural thing. That's the culture of that day. So it's not a, it's not meant to be derogatory or a detriment in any way. It just was the way the count was done of the feeding of the 5,000, which was more like 20,000, 25,000, even 30,000 people, because you had the man, the wife, and four children in most households. But we'll say, we'll keep it conservative, and we'll say that each household that was there only had two children. Probably more, but we'll say only two. So, two times 10 is 20, so the number is more like 20,000. But you go through the scripture and you find that women tended to Jesus and the disciples and the references made in the scripture that they took care of them out of their own substances, substance, which would mean that the women were, they had some substance, they had property, they had things, they had the ability to do so. And they did so to progress the ministry, the word of God, and they believed Jesus and they became his followers. And let's go to that when Jesus was crucified, because in our study and we're, we're uh, at the church that I go to, at God's house, we're discussing in John and it's getting closer and closer to the crucifixion or the time that is and we're getting closer and closer to Easter, and this is a time that Mammon has decided that Jesus was crucified and raised from the dead. It was on Easter Sunday, except there's nowhere in the Bible that... <laughs> I love it when uh, Mammon, the theological wizards, decide that a specific date, that they decide that Christmas is at a specific time of year, and that 
Um, you have uh, Easter Sunday, and that's when we celebrate Jesus's being raised and so forth and so on. And, and so many things become mammon-driven as opposed to God-driven. Just a notation, and I mean, so many churches will do that and do it in a way. And I believe that God allows these things as long as you're not uh, outright sinning against his tenants. And and I believe he does that because, <clears throat> you know, God is our heavenly father and he, and he knows that, that this is a way it makes it easier for us in this plane of existence. Because let me share with you, if, and, and I share this, and I share about the women and the disciples and all these things and the way that they did it. If you look and you walk through that that particular time period and that culture that, look the way they did the feeding of the 5,000. They were counting the heads of the household, which were the men. They didn't even count the women and children. It was just the men, 5,000. And I'm sharing with you that at that time, that's what that was about. They were counting 5,000 men, not counting their wives. And if every one of that 5,000 showed up and their wives came with them, now you're talking 10,000. And if they had, as I said, we'll do conservative numbers and we'll say two children in each household, but most often there were four, but we're going to do two. So now you're talking about 20,000. So the, the miracle was much more than five. And people hold on to the cultural way, just like they held on to the fact that Mary was a prostitute, yet there is nowhere in the scripture that says that Mary was a prostitute. However, however, there are times when Jesus does address individuals that were more inclined to be that way, and he never comes out and he never calls them a whore, he never calls them a prostitute, but just like the woman that was brought before him to be stoned because they caught her in adultery, well, what were they doing looking for her anyway? I'm just just aside, just an aside, just a side note in the ponderance. So anyway, they brought this woman, and they and the Pharisees claimed to him that they found her. Found her in adultery. What are you gonna? What, we're gonna stone her. We're gonna do it right here in front of you. Well, what did Jesus do? Jesus became very bored with their diatribe because it was the same thing all the time. And if you notice, really, you pay attention to how they're talking and what they're doing. It's the same all the time. They're in judgment on anyone else around them and is not doing and practicing exactly what they're doing. It was the same. And there are individuals that do the same thing today. They practice that Phariseeism, which throws them right into the midst of judgmentalism. And what they do is they immediately judge people on how they look, their appearance, their smell, whatever it is. But they're practicing that thing called Phariseeism. They're putting themselves in the middle of everything. They're making themselves more important. And what did Jesus show them? He knelt down and... Of course, I'm paraphrasing and going to my line of thought. So he starts to doodle in the sand. They don't even know what he's writing. Why? Because they're not paying attention. They're bent on stoning this woman that they say they caught her in the act. 
and you gripe about the FBI and everything that's going on today, well, what were they doing where she was anyway? And they caught her in the very act, says they. But they brought her to stone her in front of Jesus. And what they were doing, it wasn't really about stoning her for anything she did wrong. This was to test Jesus yet again. It's just like the blind man at the gate. They kept questioning him and they kept asking him the same thing over and over again. And what was his response? He finally got fed up with it. He says, hey, it's the same thing I told you the first time you asked me. Did you not hear? And then when his parents showed up, because they did, weren't going to take his word for it, and what did they tell the Pharisees? They told the Pharisees, he says, hey, he's not our responsibility. He's a man full grown. Ask him. He'll tell you. And they asked him yet again. And he says, you know what? I'm done with you. I'm done with you and you and you and you. And he left. Well, actually, he was thrown out of the temple. He was what they called in those, or what they call in this day now, they call him, uh, oh, what is that word? You know, you the, the um, I'm sorry, it just went right out. I almost said it and then I went right out. I just slipped right out of my <laughs> But they took and they cast him out of the synagogue. He couldn't come anymore. Why? Because he didn't answer their questions the way they liked it. So they just they decided, in their infinite knowledge, in their judgmentalism, that he was not worthy to come to the temple, just like the woman at the well. And Jesus never called her a whore, never called her a prostitute, never called her a woman of ill repute. But just like he did with the woman that they brought the stone, Jesus just told him, said, hey, any single one of you right here, now, here and now, at this very moment, if any single one of you have not sinned and have that ability to truthfully say that you haven't sinned to this point, you toss the first rock. What did they do? They dropped their stones from the young man to the oldest man and they left because they could not truthfully do so. And I believe that they were, that was representative of Jesus' authority more than they even realized. But I mean, let's look flip the coin over. What if one of them said, I don't have any sin, and they threw a rock and popped her upside the head and knocked her down like uh, David did to Goliath, and then continued throwing rocks at her. And then, of course, you know, as it was, it would have turned into a melee because then everybody else would have joined in. But they knew his authority. They knew that Jesus would know, and they did not do anything. They dropped their stones and they walked away because they knew that the truth was that he knew their heart. But they don't ever want to admit that Jesus is who Jesus is. They never wanted to admit that. Now we're going to go back again to the women. The woman at the well. 
when she admitted that she wasn't married and Jesus, of course, said, yeah, you answered rightfully so because you have had five. And none of them have been legal marriages. So in a polite way, telling her that she was what she was doing, but he said he didn't. And then, of course, she got all upset because she thought that here comes a condemnation. But Jesus was her Messiah. He came and he looked at her and he says, I don't condemn you. I don't condemn you. But here's what's going to happen. There's going to come a time. He didn't, he didn't relate. He says, I'm going to get crucified for your sake. And, and when that happens, then the, uh, then the tapestry that separates the holy from holy is, um, from the rest of the congregation is going to be rent in half. And you're going to be able to worship God anywhere and anyhow you want to, because God is spirit. He didn't, he didn't relate it that way, but basically telling her without telling her, if you follow me, that there's going to come a time where you won't have to go to the temple in Jerusalem because you're Samaritan and they, they declare that you're all unclean and so forth and so on. He said, you're going to be able to worship the Lord, the God, wherever you desire to do so, as long as you do so in truth and spirit. Because God is spirit. And because I'm making that way for you. And the only way to get to God is through me because I'm the Messiah and I am the only begotten son of God. And that when you accept that fact and you have faith in God and you believe in it, they said, you'll be able to worship God anywhere. You don't have to go to the temple in Jerusalem and have those Pharisees point their finger at you and put you in a certain section of the temple because you're Samaritan. Goodness gracious. But see, Jesus didn't function that way. Who were the first ones to the tomb when Jesus rose? Mary was the first one there. And Mary declared that she had seen that he is gone. Mary declared the word that was given to her from the angels. Mary came back. And what did they what did the what did the guys do? What did the guys do? They immediately discounted. They didn't, they didn't honor what she had said. Cultural thing. But then they went back to the tomb. They went up there. And then again, looking in and seeing that he was gone. And Mary, having returned to the to the sepulcher, she was there. And stooping down, seeing the angels, she began to cry. And the angels asked her, said, why are you weeping? Who are you looking for? Did he not tell you that he would raise on the third day? That would be this morning. He's gone. He's not here. And then, of course, too, you know, portions of the rest of the story, how she turned around abruptly to leave and there was Jesus 
She mistook him for the gardener or the tender for the garden. And she said, where is my Lord? What have you done with his body? You've taken his body. Where is he? But just as he spoke to her the first time and called her by name and reminded her that from the prophet Isaiah, what her father used to teach to her, and she didn't recognize him, and she was probably, her eyes were welled up with tears and she's probably looking around and, you know, a little bit frightened of this guy. And it was still dark out. It was still dark. The sun had not risen yet. And then it happened. Mary. He said her name. Mary. And she immediately knew and she wanted to hug him, but he he rebuked that. He said, you know, you can't. I, have, I haven't risen to the Father. I'm still, I've been buried for three days, so I'm, I'm, not, I'm not clean. It's, it would not be good for you to do that. And then off she ran again. She was the first one to the sepulcher. She was the first one that actually saw Jesus after he rose from the dead. There were a lot of firsts from Mary who was very close to them. And, and we were, I'm kind of touching on this because I see there's an important aspect to this that they, they tended that, that everything that, the, that they did was relative to the women that were taking care of them also. Mary, the mother of Jesus, spent time with them, fed them, took care of them. And when they were out with Jesus and they were traveling and that they tended to the camp and made sure that there were food preparations and probably made up the, the bedding and all that stuff for them to make sure that, that they had comfort when they came back. I mean, that's what they did. But there were a whole lot of firsts that took place because of the women, from the women. And remember too, I'm gonna jump on this. Remember too that there were those when Jesus was talking and getting ready to go, that there were those that they just left. They just walked away. They had been staying with him. It wasn't the 12 immediate, but, but even members of that 12, they left and walked away because of their skepticism, because of their doubts, because of their untempered faith, because of their untempered strength, because of their untempered perseverance to push through and continue and stay. And when they turned and walked away and they went to go in their little council of doubt, Mary stayed and the others stayed I know that maybe it sounds like kind of a sticking point, but it, I don't mean for it to be that way. That is not my intention. My intention is to make sure that what you do is that you look at things with the perspective of the Holy Spirit teaching and guiding. 
And yes, I did pray about this, and yes, he did. So when Jesus showed up to raise Lazarus, I just I find things interesting there too, is that um, he held up three days and another day to get to walk to where they were. So Lazarus had actually been dead four days. And Jesus did that intentionally. And of course, he was chastised by both Mary and Martha. And hey, if you'd been here, you wouldn't have, you would have died. You could have healed him and everything would have been okay. But he had been dead for, after he'd already been dead for four days. And when he asked if they believed that he would raise, be risen, and Martha responded, let me get back to this and make sure that I am on point with this. I don't want to give anything that's not accurate. That would not be good instruction. So when Jesus arrived and then he's trying to speak with them and he says... you believe and they said well yeah that that he's going to be risen on that last day and what they're talking about is going to heaven and and they get that and he says no he said that you believe on me and if you believe on me And I give life that he's going to be risen for the glory of God. And what he did when he said, he said this to Martha, and you're going to find this in uh, John 11. And Martha said, uh, yeah, he said, of course, I, I know he's going to be raised again in the resurrection on that last day. I believe what you were teaching. But Jesus corrected that. And he said, I am the resurrection and the life. And he that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. Believe thou this. So now Jesus is being very specific. And she said, Yea, Lord, I believe that thou art the Christ, the Son of God, which should come into the world. And when she confessed that, and she went and called Mary, and she told Mary, she said, Hey, He's here. He came. He's here. He came. And as soon as she heard that Jesus was there, that took off and they went running. And that uh, in their culture, they had uh, 
there's a number of cultures actually in the world that do this, but in those days they had uh, they had the Jews would they had so many you know depending on how uh, reputable the the household was that would be the number that would show up and and the weepers the weepers it was so staged a number of cultures would do that but. There was a number of them that were there and, and some because they were friends and some because they were just the weepers. And that's just what they did. So they came for the food, they came to hang out and what they could get. And so they that were in the house and they saw her take off at a run, so they went out and they came. And they are saying as they're trying to catch up to her, oh, she's heading to the grave. She's going to keep, so we're going to go cry with her. And she arrived to Jesus. And where did she fall? She says that she fell. The scripture says she fell. She saw him and she fell down at his feet saying, had you been here, he wouldn't have died. Now, I remember there's some certain parts of the scripture where when he sees all the showboats, they all show up and they're all mourning and weeping and crying out loud. And it says here that he groaned in the spirit and he was troubled. And Jesus wept. And then, of course, they're making a big deal. Oh, look, he must have loved him so much. See how he loved him. See how much he's sad he's crying. And Jesus wept again. I mean, that wasn't what Jesus was weeping about. He was so angry with them, and he was so saddened by their absolute lack of faith that he came to glorify the Father. He came to glorify God, but yet they were caught up in things that weren't real. And he was groaning to himself. And just their absolute lack of faith. And this, this troubled Jesus a lot. And you know that he talked about that when he went to Nazareth and he was trying to do things there. And they said, hey, we know who you are. We're not impressed. What authority do you have? You're just the son of that carpenter guy. We know your mother. We know your father. We know your brothers and your sisters. We know your family. Who are you? I'm quite certain that Jesus left and he wept and he was angry at the same time simply because of the display of the lack of faith. And they so often they miss the point. And just like they did here, the point that Jesus came was not to do the miracle of saving him from being sick, which he did and which he could have, but the point was being that to glorify God and that they would see that this is the power and the authority that he has. And he, he has to this day. And when he died and was crucified on the cross, he went to hell and he wrested the keys of death away from the prince of death is what he was at that time. And he took the keys and he is the author and finisher, the beginning and the end. And we will no longer have to suffer that no fear in that. And what did he do when he finally got done with those 
fakers and they took the stone away from the cave where they had placed him in there. And he took the stone away and, she, and Martha was reminding him that he was going to be kind of stinky. And he reminded her, he said, didn't I tell you if you would believe that you would see the glory of God, reminding her that she admitted that she would have that faith, but here comes the temperance. Here comes the tempering of her faith. They removed the stone and Jesus lifted up his eyes to heavens and of course calling down his father the heavenly attribute that his father would definitely give to him. Thank you, Father, that you heard me. But he also said something else. Look here in verse 42. John eleven forty-two. And I knew that thou hearest me always. But because of the people which stand by, I said it, that they may believe that thou hast sent me. There's a purpose. There's a purpose for every single thing that Jesus did to glorify God. And he said that out loud. And he said that so that they could know and glorify God. And then he hollered out with a loud voice after he had said that so that they would didn't hear and he called for Lazarus to come forth. And as we see, continue reading in John eleven forty four, And he that was dead came forth bound hand and foot with grave clothes and his face was bound about with a napkin. Jesus said unto them, loose him and let him go. Hmm. Now for me, some people just read and skim through this stuff, but to me, that pronouncement that Jesus shared, and he came out, and he's telling him, loose him and let him go. Wow. Loose him from the bindings of death and that fear of death and that grasp that death used to have and does not have because I am here with the authority as the only begotten son of the Lord God who sent me for your sakes to cleanse you, to save you, to reprove you. I am life and this is so you can have life and have it more abundantly. Of course, this is not in John, but I'm just saying because Loose him and let him go. But here's the Pharisees again. Some of them left and went to tattle. They went and told the Pharisees. And the chief priests and the Pharisees, what did they do? Immediately took the negativity and they took counsel and what do we do now? This man does many miracles. If we let him thus 
alone, all men will believe in him, and the Romans shall come and take away both our place and our nation. And Caiaphas, who is the number one seed, and he's reminding them that it's expedient for us that one man should die for the people and that the whole nation perish not. So this he spoke not of himself, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus should die for the nation. Interesting that Caiaphas, the head Pharisee, would say something like that, not even realizing the prophecy. But they did that because they were worried about their station, what the Romans would do if they found out. So, brothers and sisters, sharing those points and things that I've been talking to the Holy Spirit. And what we do is that we have to be mindful of the Holy Spirit and that he would lead us and guide us through our reading, our learning, our hearing, and when we're in the church. But it's important And the important aspect and the things that were said, but we have our, in Romans, I'm going to flip back here a moment because this is an important, important word. And this is in uh, Romans 12, 2. important word. And Paul is writing, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. He calls us. He calls us to serve and be about his business. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, and you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Brothers and sisters, you are in my prayers daily, on my going out and my coming in, but remember that God renews not only our bodies as our healer and our Lord God, but our mind. And remember too in Second Timothy that he has given us power and authority, not that of fear. And we have to, he tempers our faith. He tempers our walk. He tempers, temper, temper. Remember that word, strengthen, tempered steel, tempered glass. And you have tempered glass in automobiles. Tempering has to do with strengthening. And the scripture tells us and reminds us of that. That's used. 
Brothers and sisters, you have a good, blessed day.